everybody welcome to another edition of comics school my name is mike dando uh, assistant professor at st cloud state university pop culturalist um writer professional nerd as i do get paid for it now and uh, i'm glad you could join us thank you so much for taking time out of your day i am i'm always you, you all know that i'm always excited um i'm very excitable but i am super thrilled today um to chop it up and, and to share with our guest um one of one of the coolest guys that i know um and one of i i, I say this in in all seriousness just one of the most interesting fun scholars that you're gonna run into um a pop culture aficionado x-men expert we're gonna talk about all these things um dr nick miller thank you for joining us today um so excited to be here now there's a lot of there our our venn, our venn diagram is is quite is quite the overlap um so i just want to give people a, a little bit you have you got your phd at washington university yep and your master's which is also where i got my uh, washington university in st louis i should say yes um and so um we we have that in common um the the st louis um the St. Louis comic scene. Um, do you ever make it down to? Did you ever make it down to Star Clipper? I did. Yeah, yeah. and I was actually. Yeah, I was there when it moved too. When it right. moved locations from being on the Loop there all the way back to downtown. Yep. So yeah, very familiar with Star Clipper. Loved yep. the employees there. Big They're shout awesome. out to employees. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, and so and so we have um, we have a shared uh, we have a shared uh, affection for for T Ravs and 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 comics and all kinds of and all kinds of things. Um, but uh, you have made you are you are currently you're no longer in St. Louis. I am also no longer in St. Louis, but you are in um, South Carolina, South Carolina, Lexington, Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, so no, get your geography right. So you actually no, you're in Lexington, Kentucky, um, teaching seventh and eighth grade. So that's very very exciting. Um, and um, also um, part do work doing work with. Um, the comics comic studies society yep yep i'm Is currently working with the social strategist for the comic study society so um so check check uh check them out check us us out yeah um <laughs> <laughs> if you <laughs> that felt that feels weird like you should check us out we're the best <laughs> uh, but definitely check out the comic study society if you haven't um it's fantastic collection of scholars uh anna was on um with us um friend of the pod um, yeah. and, and a bunch of bunch of friends. So check check them out. Um, and Nick, we and I'm not going to do the new girl thing. I refuse to. I refuse <laughs> to do it. OK, people at home listening, you can do it in your mind if you want. But we're not going to do that here because we 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 have we have respect for, for our guests. Um, <laughs> Nick and, Miller, Nick Miller, he's a stone cold. No, like the see, taste of vanilla. <laughs> you know what we're not going to do? We're not going to do that. Um, <laughs> Uh, but Nick, can you, we always start off, um, every super, every superhero has their origin story. And so if you would indulge us, um, story time, story time here, what's, what was your origin story? Where did you, where did you kind of pick up on comics and, and <laughs> why are they still like, how are they still? And, and why are they still such an Im important part of, um, your daily life and your practice. I see this is good content um, for a podcast, but you know, you've got the Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse uh, poster behind you with, um, with, with Spider-Gwen and of course uh, the guy, Miles Morales. Um, so can you take us through um, young Nick Miller at the spinner rack? <laughs> I can try to, it's funny. You mentioned Anna just a minute ago and I was actually on her podcast, the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow yeah. podcast, like maybe two months ago or something like that. And I was asked my origin story as well. And right. for that one, I actually did research. I actually had pinpointed some of the dates. <laughs> I've probably forgotten them all by now. But um, young Nick Miller actually started off with what I could get for free because we didn't have a local comic shop where I grew up. So I was reading um, a lot of the sort of Calvin and Hobbes, looking at the Sunday funnies. And 
any of the Archie comics I could get my hands on at the supermarket. That's what I had available to me. Right. Up until sometime, it must have been like 90, 91, probably when my local library put out this wicker basket that had a bunch of like loose single floppies of comics that were mostly superhero comics. Um, and they were all out of order. They were all clearly donated, but they were there if we wanted to. And so we would awesome. go, we'd go to the library and I'd sit in the corner with the wicker basket. Um, I'd pick up like my whole stack of books I wanted to read. And then while everyone else was doing stuff, I'd sit there and read some of the comics. And the sort of origin story of Dazzler, actually, which I'm sure we're going to talk about here, is that my very first X-Men comic that I picked up out of that whisker ba- wicker basket, excuse me, was X-Men 244, Ladies' Nights. Um, yes! Introduction of Jubilee, uh, but also my introduction to Dazzler, who I thought was super cool, especially when she put Storm up on a stage there to sort of dance with the Hot Bodies men in that. Um, <laughs> A super weird way to jump into X-Men comics, but I sort of never left, right? I it's a very been- 90s way to jump into X-Men comics. Very like tail <laughs> yeah. end of the mall of the yeah. mall scene era. <laughs> yeah. And I again I grew up I was just young enough to grow up yeah. in the era when there were mall rats and when the mall was right. like the sort of hub of my social scene, right? And right. so that comic meant a lot to me. I read a bunch of X-Men comics super out of order for years. And then finally, at some point in high school, realized that there was a comic shop down in East Lansing, which is like 15 minutes away. And I actually started trying to read some of the X-Men slightly in order. To be, fair to, be fair to our to our X-Men readers and, and fans, reading them out of order or reading them in order it makes about the same amount of sense. <laughs> Except yeah. for maybe if you're if you're reading right now, uh, Hickman's run, that makes a lot of sense. Like, it's weird, but at least know what's happening. Um, right. So it's not. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'll, I'll do respect to Chris Claremont. I love Chris Claremont. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a, a deep mythos, uh, so much so that I think was it grand design that I think yeah. Ed Pisker is like, I'm going to do the impossible right. um, <laughs> and make yeah. this make sense. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> but shout and shout out to the to the public library um, in, in this is in Michigan. So Michigan yeah. public library system um, yeah. shaping the the scholars of tomorrow today. Yes, um, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Well, and again, my town was tiny. Right. So like I grew up in a small town called Williamson, Michigan. My graduating class in high school, I think, was like 90 some students. Right. Like we're talking a very small town. Sure. Like We didn't have a robust library system, but. You know, there was a wicker basket. And when I got older, I realized because I was close to Michigan State that there were comics everywhere if I wanted them. I just and didn't know it's a youth. That's still the case yes. up in Michigan State. All the yes. comics, I think Julian Chambliss, friend of the pod, <laughs> has all the comics. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Shout out to Randy at the MSU Special yeah, exactly. Collection. Okay? Like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. Um, but um, so, but you didn't, in, in your trajectory, you did not, like, get your PhD in comics studies. We were talking a little bit um, right. about this in, in the green room. And, um, and, and you actually did, uh, you had a focus in, in America. I'm going to butcher this Americans. No, not American studies. Transatlantic boats. It was boat. No, it wasn't boats. <laughs> what, 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 what did, what did you, what was your focus? Because it wasn't like, I think a lot of people, think well you just you you got your con your you have your doctorate you have your doctorate in comic studies or or visual rhetorics or something yeah so my phd technically um my focus in my field is is early american sort of literature right and so like i i've worked with the society of early americanists etc but i did a, a real focus on transatlantic studies especially after my first two years of grad school because i switched to advisors and i had some really great colleagues that were more british people and kind of found my, found my literary love in Gothic fiction. And so I ended up doing a dissertation on posthumanism and Gothic fiction. But along the way, I did a fellowship in American culture studies. And um, I had some really great colleagues there. I spent most of my time over in that building on campus. And that's where I got to sort of do some of the pop culture stuff. One of my best friends in the world, Noah Cohan, does sports studies there. And so we were doing all sorts of really cool work with conferences and, and forming the Sports Studies Caucus for the American Studies Association. Oh, wow. So... I had lots of opportunities to both teach and think about things that were pop culture related, comics related, but none of my scholarship until I had graduated and moved on to sort of a different part of my career actually focused on comics and pop culture in that way. So, so how did, so, 
and, and this was my this was the case for me, too, is um, in my in my undergrad and probably up until I started maybe right before I started grad school, but but probably a good at least at least five, six, seven years. Um, I I kind I, I knew I, I, I kept a peripheral interest, but I wasn't like collecting it. I wasn't running out and like uh, I uh, my subscriptions lapsed and I wasn't hitting up new comic book day. Um, how did how did comics or, you know, in graphic novels recenter themselves for you? Like, how did they come back into the picture? Was it part of the um, was it part of the pop culture studies? You're like, oh, yeah, I do love comics or like yeah. what was that for you? I mean, I think that the tail end of my grad school years, there was a really deep, renewed interest in popular culture, largely because, honestly, I think my return to comics was tied to my return, not to my return, to my deep investment in social media. Sure. Um, in the sense that I had been thinking a lot more about myself as a teacher in the last years of graduate school, thinking about my pedagogy. Sure. Um, I had gone back and sort of revisited Bell Hooks and Paulo Freire. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking a lot about that sort of very famous, you know, sort of concept that Paulo Freire talks about in terms of literacy being learning not only how to read the word, but also how to read the world. That's right. And that's right. I was looking at my students. I was looking at me and I was like, you know what? So much of our values, our understanding of the world, our literacies are being shaped by popular culture. It matters that I'm training myself and I'm training my right. students oh. how to develop those types of literacies. I was starting to do a lot more incorporation then of film and social media mm -hmm. in my classes. And somewhere right after I graduated, I was having a really great conversation with Jared Gardner, who is also an early Americanist by training. Yeah, right, right. Shouts out. Hello. Uh, and he uh, he basically sort of gave me permission to sort of say, screw it. Like, I don't have to just do this one special thing I yeah. do with Charles Brockton Brown in early American literature. Right. And he invited me to come out and I presented my first comic scholars uh, presentation at CXC in Columbus back hey. in 2018. Um, and everyone there was like, this is awesome. Why aren't you hanging out with us? Who are you? And I was like, this, <laughs> this is family, right? This is amazing. Hello. Hello, brother. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it was just, it was such a really great experience. Um, you know, and I met people like Liam Eisner and stuff that was there. Mm -hmm. They were just like super welcoming. I was live tweeting the whole thing. I was talking about Jughead Jones and asexuality. And it was just like this beautiful, lovely awesome. moment. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And at that time, I was moving into a visiting position at Holland University. Right. On. And all the things I was thinking about scholarly wise, comics wise, immediately made their way into my classes there. Um, and it made perfect sense. And I was like, this is this is what literacy looks like to me. Right. It is multimodal. Yes. It is transmedial. It is so important for us to be able to read all these things. And honestly, comics and other forms of visual media. Mm -hmm. I've long been doing in some ways better work of engaging with some of the social justice questions, some of the ethical questions tied to how we teach literature, how we think about canons. And so I was like, this is, this is where I want to be. Right. And we could spend, uh, and for those of you listening, definitely take a pause, rewind that and listen to that. And then, and, and make sure you're taking copious notes. Cause that's the jam right there. Those are the gems, right. Is, um, not just oh comics are comics are are for if your kids don't want to read or don't read good <laughs> you should give them a comic give yeah. them a wicker basket and tell them to tell them to read they'll do yeah. it like that's not it what we're talking about is learning to read the word and the world through these through these complex and complicated multimodal uh nar you know narratives the 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 complex visual narratives that uh, or visual rhetoric that's happening um and taking up um issue the as you said those issues of social justice i mean that is um and being you know i can see very much still the overlap of humanism and posthumanism like <laughs> in <laughs> comics like that's not a big jump um it's a hop, maybe, but at the same yeah. time. And so so and, and so maybe that's a good way to transition. But like, you know, it makes all the sense. It, it makes all the sense in the world to me. Here, you talking about it. Um, what I'm curious about. Is, you know, I understand, you know, if you if you talk to somebody 
and you're going to and, and you say, all right, let me talk to you about the X-Men real quick. They're, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, let me talk. I want to talk about Wolverine real quick. Or I, I want you know who's great. Like you talked to that. We have we have uh, friends and colleagues who only like who do they love? Nightcrawler, period. Yeah. And yeah. that's the dude. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting. And like for me, it's for me, it's Storm. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we all kind of g- gravitate in different ways. Maybe that's one of the things about that makes the X-Men so special. But but for you, it's it's Allison Blair, like Dazzler, because you're your Twitter handler handle and, and shouts out for if you want to if you want to follow is is what it's at at Uncanny Dazzler. Right. At Uncanny Dazzler. Right. Yeah. And I have I've seen I've seen the X-Men. I've read the I've I've read the disco boogie. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about that. Like, what is it about Dazzler, Allison Blair, that that has captivated your your interest because you've written great stuff about her just beautiful brilliant stuff about i gotta tell you thank you thank you so so i'm gonna let you sell it not sell us on allison blair but like what is it about what is it about her position or or her the space she takes up that is compelling for you yeah, that's a great question. I've actually, um, so yeah, you, I've, I've written about Alison Blair. Obviously, I'm still writing about Alison Blair, right? Yeah, I'm, you I'm are. On my sort of <laughs> Dazzler Lizzo sort of essay at the moment. But um, I think that part of it for me is the fact that um, almost all of the things that I find interesting about comics and about the X-Men can be made manifest through Dazzler, okay? So Dazzler, her own origin story is tied to an attempt by um, Casablanca Records and Marvel Comics to create a transmedia property, right? She was going to be this transmedia figure. There was going to be a movie and a soundtrack and an album and and the comics, and they were all going to work together. Now, that failed utterly. It didn't actually didn't, materialize didn't, in that didn't way. Go, didn't, it didn't just go not great. It didn't go. It didn't uh, go. And I, I feel like there was an Easter egg in one of the X-Men movies where, like, they were at the mall flipping yeah. through records and there was a dazzler record was yes it, i think yeah. it was one of i think it was first class yeah um well, but whatever one came right before dark phoenix i which i can't remember anymore. i i prefer not to to spend too much time <laughs> thinking about those movies because of the 30 seconds of dazzler showing up in it okay like Correct. she finally made her live action debut I, so. I felt the same way and had the same <laughs> the same sad disappointment i was like it's colossus yes my number two favorite oh <laughs> what yeah anyways but you were talking about so so dazzler they were it was going to be this transmedia property they were going to have this be albums and movies and like the first cover of like dazzler one looked like an album cover like the whole thing yeah Yeah. but there's also this sort of other weird history that's tied to it right and and there's the fact that dazzler was actually first imagined as a grace jones figure she was a black woman um john romita jr had imagined her as this the studios decided they wanted to go with more of a bo derrick look um, but also there's this sort of disco tie-in, right? I mean, yes. disco was this sort of radical queer space until we get to the sort of like reimagining of it through Saturday Night Fever and the sort of ends of disco and the sort right. of counterculture sort of narratives that emerged. And so you had this sort of queer, potentially black, super disco figure that was going to be a transmedia figure. And all of that failed. And that failure to me is super interesting. But also I still love what followed, right? right. I actually taught an introduction to comics course at Valdosta State in my last year that I was there and I actually introduced superhero comics through Dazzler. Like I didn't start off with anything else. I was like, we're going to start with Dazzler. This is your introduction to superhero comics. And I was like, look, first of all, she does debut in one of the best known superhero stories of all time. Right. With the dark Phoenix saga, she shows up there. It's weird, but she shows up there. Right. Right. She also, um, is this sort of wonderful space of thinking about the intersection of superhero comics and romance comics, right? Her solo Mm. series is this fascinating moment where we're not only getting romance comics, but we're also getting this woman, Alison Blair, who is trying to grapple with the disappointment of her career choice because her dad wanted to go to law school. She was clearly capable and could do it. Right. Right. She wants to be a singer, but she's also a mutant who's getting drawn into this sort of hero narrative. Right. Right. Um, She also then becomes the first openly out mutant. Right. In the sort of really terrible Dazzler, the movie graphic novel that I still love teaching because it teaches really well. Yeah. She becomes the sort of center point for the sort of being hated and feared um, by those you're trying to protect. Right. Like it was, that was a tagline beforehand, but she's the first one. She gets outed 
publicly as the celebrity figure and we get to see all of that fallout. Like, how do we tell the X-Men story then without Dazzler, right? She is central to it in some ways and she raises questions that we don't ask enough about visibility because of her celebrity status, right? Where is the overlap between celebrity, right? And some of the other narratives that come up here. What does it mean to be visible as a woman? What does it mean to be sort of taken advantage of and assaulted as a woman in Dazzle the Movie in the Hollywood industry, right? And I've written about this for the middle spaces. I'll plug myself for a hot second there, right? Yeah. Um, That is also- We we openly encourage shameless (laughs) self-promotion. Yes, yes. And again, for me, like Dazzler is this wonderful figure who is by all accounts, a straight character. But, mm-hmm. right, has become a sort of queer icon for fan communities, right? Like, That's I mean, right. you know, the, the sort of Dazzler fandom, if you ever go to um, Dragon Con in Atlanta, mm-hmm. like, we have a Dazzler happy hour there. That community is amazing, right? And it's right. a very gay community, right? Um, Brian Johnson has written about this in Super Sex, right? The sort of ways in which Dazzler became a really important space, particularly for queer white men. It's a wonderful piece. You know, to, to think through some of these things. And I actually wrote a, an entire sort of queer cultural history of her for um, the Oxford Handbook of Comic Book Studies, right? And, and for me, it's like, wow, like I get to talk about celebrity. I get to talk about sort of queer politics. I get to talk right. about the race issue and the erasure of race issue here. That's I get right. to talk about transmedia. Um, all of these things are sort of located in Dazzler while also being a superhero comic located in the very familiar X-Men right. universe. Um, so yeah, like talking Dazzler makes me super excited. And then you had the really great, and I don't. People don't always agree with you. But I think Dazzler X song number one, the sort of solo sh- one shot that came yeah. out. I think it was amazing. Um, I think you know it was written by a trans writer. It is very much trying to get at some of the politics that are tied up in sort of queer communities and their sort of relationship to trans communities and the sort of inclusion exclusion narratives that show up there through pitting these sort of X Men and the Inhumans in it. Yeah. It's just it's yeah. it's beautiful. Dazzler always gives me great stuff to think about, and so I'm like, right. here we go. Well, Plus, she's fabulous. She's and and I'll just show this. I have uh, and I put this on. I put this on my Facebook, but I just got a. I just just got a. It's a. It's a, a custom. It's a custom cover of Gem with the Infinity Gauntlet. So it's the Infinity Gem. Um, I love it. But but I guess you're thinking about fabulous, outrageous. She's outrageous. Yeah. Um, but 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 I think part of that gets to you know what what's fascinating about the X-Men writ large or, or as mm-hmm. a kind of cultural touchstone, but um, what many of the storytellers that have taken up the X-Men, you know, uh, across the years have, have wrestled with is that notion of uh, agency and visibility and vulnerability, especially, you know, I think about uh, the latter, the latter day, Alison Blair, who went almost, she did kind of, she made kind of a an, a storm adjacent move in in kind of punk yeah in a punk direction which i thought was which i thought was interesting um after some comics comics shenanigans yeah um she had re-envisioned herself um as uh, with a little bit of a uh I, I how should we how should we put this a, a, a harder edge not but not really a harder edge a more like sharper edge than yeah. than the disco how would you describe it because she un- she does undergo this visible transformation that i think as as x-men often do speak to a larger discussion but particularly with with dazzler yeah. going from one space visibly to another i think is is interesting um h- how would you describe that that <laughs> shift do you know what i mean I always refer to that as sort of Dazzler's pop punk era, right? Because it's right. That's fu- that's totally fair. Yeah, it's it's performatively punk in some ways, but it's actually got I think closer ties to what we might consider sort of more of an emo sort of vibe to it, right? That's like fair. He's grappling with some some trauma that happens here, right. right? And she wants to reinvent herself. Like for me, this is the this is the Dazzler that you sort of read when you're going to put on some Paramore or My Chemical Romance, and you're going to sort of vibe with her in those moments. Um, Shall we but- panic at the disco? Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. No, I get you. Yeah, but I think it's it's really important though because as again this sort of visible figure who is trying to come to terms with her identity over and over again, right? That need to sort of visibly reinvent yourself um, matters a lot, and I think it matters a lot even more in the social media era, right? The ways in which we are constantly looking for visual cues to signal to others 
who we are, what we're feeling, um, and that we are consuming all of that visually as well, right? I mean, I, I, I've had this conversation with friends um, before. We were I, I was talking with Margaret Galvin and Jeremy Carnes, who I'm working with um, on another project. And, you know, I, I talk all the time about how Dazzler would be literally the social media queen of the X-Men, right? Like, that she is spending so much time thinking about the, the importance of the visual in the same way in some ways that us as comic scholars are doing the same, right? right? right. She, she knows the visual matter. She knows these cues matter. Um, and I would love to see what her actual social media feed would look like. Um, I think she would be amazing on TikTok. If Marvel, if you're, talented- Marvel, if you're listening and, and, <laughs> and you're interested in, in actually doing that transmedia thing. Yeah, um, right. It's right there. It is. Uh, but, <laughs> um, yeah, I would love to. I, would love I think to that's, see that. I think that's yeah. right. I think, yeah. I think that's right. Um, because she is clearly not the only ex person mm-hmm. to ex figure to go through what, what do the kids say? Go through some things, yeah. right? Like uh, a lot of people forget that, that, Carol Danvers was an, was binary for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, Storm, um, Nightcrawler, Colossus, Wolverine must suffer. He's the yes. he's the he's the chief O'Brien of the X Men. Yes. You can be happy for three panels, and right. then we're going to pour you. We're going to set you on fire for three issues. <laughs> right. right? But, with so but with that, I mean, it's different. It is because. I, I think one of the things I love about Dazzler is that Dazzler always has to go through these transformations in the public eye, right? There so, like, is. for us as as comic scholars and as comics fans and as comics readers, we see Storm go through this. We see Wolverine go through this, right? But diegetically, Dazzler is doing this in front of the public, right? She has to sort of sit there and be like, okay, um, I have to go through all of this and people are watching or they're, or my fans are paying attention or whatnot, right? And we see some elements of that with other figures because there is a sort of fandom tied to superheroes even within their own sort of superhero worlds but not in the same way that it is for dazzler right like we'd have right. to see that happen for like alila cheney right for that to happen in yep. other ways right yep. so no yeah. and 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 that's and i think that's that's the the interesting thing about this conversation or at least the contours of this particular conversation is um how one how one navigates the terrain, the the social, cultural, political, economic um, terrain of public facing this this visibility in a in these in these trying times. I keep thinking of yes. trying times. Can I offer you? Can I offer you? A, <laughs> I think our age times, is right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but but this idea of being a public figure and how does one um, not deal with, but how does one be true to your, you know, how can a person be true to themselves, um, their full authentic selves? We're talking about reading the word in the world and, yeah. and, and, and navigating a, per, a particularly political terrain. Um, I think that resonates with not only just young people, but anyone who um, has been around the last 50 years. Right. Right. And I think because there's... people do live their lives in public in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that I find interesting when I do teach Dazzler, right, is that students are so quick to actually make some of those connections, right? Like it takes me like 30 seconds for a student to be like, oh my gosh, this reminds me of Taylor Swift, right? Yep. Because of the disco hey. or even the blonde hair. But because we literally watched Taylor Swift go from young sort of country singer to perhaps involuntary white supremacist go-to musician to somebody who spoke out openly about her politics, from somebody who had homophobic lyrics early on and then was trying to champion sort of LGBT rights in some of her songs, right? She grew up in the public eye, right? That doesn't excuse the mistakes she made necessarily, but it does give people like, okay, what does it look like, right? Exactly. you know, today with other people that might be more relevant to Gen Z, when you think about like Olivia Rodrigo, for example, right? Like, right. what does it look like for somebody who has grown up in that public sphere to suddenly deal with the claims of plagiarism or to have right. these questions about like, what are you doing writing about an actual breakup? Or like, how immature are you, right? Like, what does it mean right. to grow up and to sort of experience things as authentically and vulnerably as you might be able to in the public eye? And, and for students, they're doing that in social media in their own ways. Boom. You get... You you seamlessly transitioned here because that's the thing I think that 
hits different now as yeah. to, like, well, of course there's child stars. Like there are always those horror stories of like Judy Garland and Mickey uh, and Mickey Rooney were on amphetamines the whole time, except for when they had to get knocked out by their handlers. Like, and that's, I'm not being flippant. Sure. What I'm saying is contextually, like when we're watching these things happen, there are those stories, they do exist, but it's, you know, it's different for, let's say a middle schooler now who also yeah. is, is if, if I'm growing up on Twitter and we have, we have, uh, or TikTok or Snapchat, um, you'll notice I left Facebook out. Yes. Um, <laughs> I did it on purpose. Yes. Um, but, but to, to grow up in those spaces that are very public facing, it's easier to make those connections. So yes, sure. you see my, you, you see someone like a, like you said, Taylor Swift, or even, you know, I'm going to date myself here. I would argue that um, like Beyonce in the same, like yeah. Destiny's Child, she was young and now she's Beyonce. She right. wasn't always Beyonce, but we watched that transformation. And so kids and our students are processing that in a completely different way because they've come up in a completely different, as you said, diegetical space. Right. Yeah. Or and I think that that's a really good comparison. Yeah. And I think that, you know, for me, it's, it's so easy, I think, for me, for people in my generation or in sort of adjacent generations, right, to look at the sort of social media age, to look at students in this and be quick to be critical, right, of what they're doing and, right. and not to pay attention to how difficult it is to grow up under public scrutiny in that way, right? Hey, that hey. is hard. And I think hey. that we have to learn how to teach them to read that world and also be for them, be there for them when they screw up in reading Talk that world and to make it. sense of it. Yeah. And that, I mean, that, that, is is exactly it when we're reconceptualizing that notion of reading the word and the world. So when Freire writes that, he, first of all, he's he is writing to a particular and for a particular audience. Yes, but this is well before, this is well pre internet. Yeah. So what is the word? You know what I mean? Like this right. is well before th literature on third spaces and infinity spaces this is well before, yeah. you know, uh, Lave and Wagner. All right. Uh, like, <laughs> OK, so yeah. so what does it mean to what does it mean to be in that space, to read that word, to read that world? Like I wasn't surprised at the those stats that came out um, that this is harmful, but it's yeah. harmful because no one has or, or maybe relatively few folks and we need to do better. I think I would I would argue we need to do a better job of, as you said, working and collaborating with students to navigate that terrain that right. we, uh, you know, I prior generations don't know how to navigate. So yeah. it's like, well, we sent the kids into a into a, a landmine field. Uh, it right. turns out that's real dangerous. Yeah. Do you know, do you know what I'm saying? It's so like, we have the stats that this is not a great thing. Like, yeah, right. bro, you got to help yeah. them. You got to work with them, navigate it. Right. And we tend to trivialize those spaces too. Correct. Right. I mean, I think Correct. Correct. when I was teaching at Hollins, it was amazing to me. Like I sort of knew this, but I didn't really know it in the way that I, I should have. But you know, a large number of my students, especially those that were LGBT students had learned the language for the world and the feelings and the experiences they were having on Tumblr. Right. Yeah. In the yeah. same way that many of my queer students today are yeah. learning about their own experiences through TikTok, et cetera. And so we want to dismiss these spaces, but like we're not giving them those narratives elsewhere. This is where they're learning it. it. How do we give them the skills and strategies to read that in a way that is going to be productive hey. and helpful and safe? Yeah. Right. If we can do that, like we are winning, even yeah. if we don't love TikTok, even if I can't do any of the dances. Right. Like it doesn't matter because this is what the world they're living in. This is the world they're reading. And we need to give them the tools and support to do that effectively Bingo. rather than trivializing the space that is Bingo. so important and influential and formative for them. Talk about it. Look, right, I'm preaching now. No, no. <laughs> we uh, I we discourage uh, me doing TikTok dances on the show, but we <laughs> encourage um, we, we encourage preaching because I think that is uh, it's, it's important because um, that's what it means to speak. I think what it, part of what it means to speak truth to power is um, 
is is to say, okay, what is this landscape? How do we take because if we're going to be effective in the classroom, we have to take the real lives and worlds and experiences of our students. Uh, We don't have to. As you said, we don't have to participate, but we do have to be attuned, right? Like we don't have to do the TikTok dances, but we do have to understand their significance and their importance beyond what they do and really critique. And and I don't mean like complain and nitpick and quibble, but be critical of as in engage in discussions of power, as it were. Um, We need to critique those spaces and we need to give and need to work with our students to develop those critical skill, those critical media literacy skills to go, okay, this is how this space works. This is what this means for me. And this is how I'm going to do it because that becomes then an agentic and transformative space. That's what it means. As you you mentioned, bell hooks to teach, to transgress. And so now I'm preaching because every, that's a call and response. That's all I know is I hear, I catch the spirit. And that's it. But I want to talk about teaching comics um, yep. because the, it, it has. So as a, as a medium and as we say often here, not a genre. Yeah. Medium. Yeah. It's very important. Yes. Um, <laughs> and a wonderful, unstable medium. C- correct. No one knows what it is, but we know <laughs> it's not a genre. Right. So yes. that's like every comic scholar will be like, it's not a genre because that's yeah. the only thing we know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but. Um, it has become increasingly, uh, uh, how shall I say this? Um, it's become less um, strange, less eccentric to include graphic novels and comics in sure. a curriculum. Yes. Now, often that's been um, Mouse, which is right. great. We lo- like you love it, but it's been um, Persepolis. Like that's that's great. We need sure. those. We need those pieces. But even but in contemporary time, like in contemporary language arts pedagogy, there are a whole, um, you know, if, if you go to the National Council of Teachers of English, you'll you'll yeah. you, you can't swing a cat without you shouldn't swing a cat. But if you were, <laughs> uh, you can't swing a sock without hitting 10 graphic novels. Right. For the classroom, um, yeah. one of which is 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 wonderful, written um, by our, our friend Jerry Kraft, um, yep. new kid. And you've taught that. But what is it? Um, and you and maybe if you want to talk a little bit about that or just teaching about teaching comics in schools in a contemporary fashion, that isn't that classics illustrated. We we made a graphic novel out of the three musketeers. Right. Hey, kids, don't you love now? Yeah. There's pictures. Yeah, right. I said. Then I'll say it again because I'm reckless. We can edit that out, right, Mark? Just bleep, just bleep that, please. Actually, I'm teaching right. the Tempest. I just oh, taught yeah, the Tempest. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I'm I'm there with you, right? Sure, sure, um, sure, sure. But but what is that? What does that look like? How is that? How is that done? Not how is it done? But but how are you doing that? How are you taking that up in your practice? Um, sure. In in twenty in the in the post pandemic no in the mid pandemic era. Good. Yeah. So I think that, so again, like I said, I'm teaching middle school now, which is, is, is really interesting. And so one of the things that I love about the, the curriculum that I've built for my seventh graders this year is that their summer reading book was a book called the first rule of punk um, by Celia C. Perez. Um, and it's a Fantastic book that I've loved dearly book. for a long time. Oh, that's uh, awesome! It, it features, you know, these sort of wonderful, simple zines that introduce students to the ways in which visual culture are part of our sort of thought process, our therapy, whatever it may be. Right. And they read this over the summer. We come back, we spend about a week in class talking about it. And then the first project I give them is to create their own personal zines to tell them, tell me something about them. Right. So we're getting a little bit of visual analysis in there, but we're also tying it to the personal, right? We're connecting that immediately to who they are. And from there, we jump right into Jerry Craft's new kid. Um, Now I'm teaching at an independent school. So the idea of somebody coming to an independent school, being the new kid, um, being from a less represented community in that school, et cetera, like students were able to sort of immediately like, okay, cool. I see this narrative. I can recognize the story. Um, and I was really, unfortunately, um, I don't know, just super depressed in the last couple of weeks when the whole situation in KDISD in Texas, where they were trying to ban and pull new kid from the shelves there. Um, both because it seems disingenuous and misguided, but also because it just, none of it made any sense within my experience of teaching new kid in the classroom. Right. What ended up happening when we, when I taught new kid, right. Was that 
I was able to help students understand how to read visual narratives. And those visual narratives allowed them to see things in the world that they already knew, but didn't necessarily have language for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, yes. Did I teach words that sometimes become considered taboo in our contemporary political space? Yes. My students learned what the word microaggression meant, right? We talked about it, but instead of leading them to feel some sort of weird guilt or some sort of shame at being American or whatever other weird narratives are circulating about this, what they ended up doing with that was amazing. They were like, wow, we just tend to make a lot of assumptions about people all the time. Right. And so it was, yes, some of it was racially motivated, right? They understood that assuming that the black kid plays sports is a microaggression, right? They got that, but they also were like, wow, there's a lot of assumptions being made about this rich white kid named Liam, right? People assume because he is wealthy or comes from a wealthy family that these are the things he likes. This is what he does. Right. And they were able to see this across a lot of characters in the graphic novel. And what they ended up doing is saying, yeah, like, what do we need to do? We need to learn how to read people better, which means we don't jump to immediate assumptions about them based on just a few clues. That's right. We have to read people more deeply, just like we have to read books more deeply. Right. And as a literary teacher, right, as somebody who's doing ELA, you know, teaching graphic novels like New Kid or even the small visual narratives in something like The First Rule of Punk actually helps my students to read straight up books that are sort of just text based better. Right. Because I teach my, my approach to literacy is that good. The first step to reading well is learning how to notice details, right? Not making sense of them, not doing anything else, but just how do you notice details? How do you notice more? How do you notice better? And giving them a visual narrative like New Kid or any other graphic novel or comic defamiliarizes all of their assumptions about how we read because they don't know how to read visually yet, or at least they don't have words to talk about it. That's right. That's that's huge. Um, and you said and you and you mentioned that. And I think that's really interesting is is this idea of I think because kids are because so many of our students are almost socially conditioned to focus on what they don't know, that right. they don't know what they do know, or yes. at least they haven't articulated the thing yeah. that they do know. Like they come up in like they're immersed in visual culture. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, yeah. I process like, right? Yeah. Like I, I, I will often say that I learned to process visual culture as quickly as I could because I grew up watching the intro to Thundercats and <laughs> that goes about a zillion miles an hour and you have to stay on your toes and you have to watch it 58 times before you figure out what's going on. Yes. But, but our kids are like, yeah, I do that. That's no problem. Yeah. But, but well, then it's, it's about articulating it. Right. And it was interesting to me. And it was, it was, I mean, I can't say enough good things about my students, really. I mean, teaching these seventh graders, I'm a new teacher in their school. I'm here for, you know, two weeks and I'm starting to ask them to do visual culture stuff. And maybe after one or two class periods, um, you know, my head of school came in to observe one class period and I was just sitting up there and I had a lesson plan, Yeah, but I was having so much fun. I would literally just sort of turn to a page in the graphic novel and be like, what's happening here? What do we right. notice about the panels? What things stand out to you? And students like went boom, 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 boom. And then we're into analysis, right? They they're like, oh, look at their hair is sort of going over the panel into the next panel. I think that's drawing our eyes to that and showing that those things are connected. I'm like, yes, great. You know, and now my project has been for them to be like, okay, now we're reading a book that is text-based only. How do you take those same principles and apply them? And you, and you I, I love the way that you put that, um, you know, how do we notice better and how do we notice different? Yeah. Right. Like that is such a, a powerful and profound statement that not just for our kids to do, our, our students to do, but for us as educators and us as literacy scholars, uh, us, as, us as people, how do we notice mm -hmm. better and how do we notice different. And I just, that, that I'm going to, I'm that's going to stick with me. It's going to resonate with me for the foreseeable future, because I think it's such an important, um, an important thing to do, especially when we're getting bombarded with all of this, um, all of this information, whether it's text, whether it's, you know, prose or visual mm -hmm. or audio visual or audio, right. This multimode, the critical multimodality means you can shift, <laughs> shift gears in some ways. Right. Um, and, and, and I so appreciate that it wasn't, okay, now I'm going to talk, I'm going to tell you about this and I'm going to quiz you on the, I'm going to quiz you on, on what these are. And then you need to be able to tell me they're able yeah. to mobilize that and articulate those, um, those, uh, 
those features and, and engage those skills in meaningful ways. So it's not like, oh, you're just reading comics. Right. I, don't, I, I always argue that there's no such thing as just reading comics. Sure. Um, <laughs> the, the listeners can't see, but I'm actually wearing my reading comics as reading. Reading, right. Right. Now. right. Yeah. But it's, it's this, you know, oh, it's simply reading comics. Right. Like there's no simply about it. There's no simple right. about it. And your kids are proving that to be true and that you don't have to do a worksheet. You don't have to. Um, um, you, it doesn't have to be this disconnected, disconcerting um jargony um field but it, it it should be lively it should crackle it needs to be engaging um and it goes well beyond um what we are often told in the right. it, it comics are not just r&d for the next movie it they right. do a completely they function as a way of reading the word in the world i think that's really really important yeah and i think that also i i we, we need to recognize that our systems and structures as a sort of educational system, right, writ broadly, have been training students in certain ways. By the time I get them in seventh and eighth grade, I have get a them. lot of students that are like, I'm not good at English or I'm not good at reading. Hey, yep. And this is often a great way to- I, I don't like reading. Yeah. 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 And so like when I have a student that's like, I'm not good at reading, and then they suddenly can tell me 30 things about one panel that they saw in this one book that I assigned them. Right. I'm like, no, it's not that you're not good at reading. Right. It's that you haven't had an opportunity to practice it in this way. Right. right? You haven't had, you've been told that you have to answer worksheets about content when really what you're doing here is making meaning, right? You have taken something that you noticed and you're Hey-o. making meaning out of it. That is literacy. Congratulations. That's literacy, baby. Yep. Right? That's, that's exactly like, like you, you've been doing this the whole time. Yeah. Now, now you have, now, now you have the codex as it were to be able to, to, to be able to speak to it on a, on a different, right. you know, in a, in a different register, not a better register, but, oh, you were doing all of these higher order thinking things. Now yeah. we can, now we can point to them. Um, I, I would be remiss. I want to plug, you've got a couple of projects happening i sure. feel like and i don't know i don't and i'll just I'll, I'll ask because you're you've written extensively um and are you you're putting together you're putting together work you're 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 editing work you're yep. putting books out um what projects do you got coming coming down the line that you could talk to us about sure so um one of the big ones right now is um an edited collection that i'm working on with margaret galvin and jeremy carnes which is um a collection on X-Men, the animated series, uh, which I'm super excited about. Yes. Uh, so, um, we've got some amazing contributors and some amazing essays coming out with that, including some artwork and some other work that's going to be sort of part of that. Uh, so that's been one of the really fun projects. It's been nice to revisit the 90s, um, revisit that animated series now that it's on Disney+. Plus. Yo, right? it, by the way, I've got my kids and that holds up. Yeah. It is one of those like because I'm always nervous about this because nostalgia is pain of the past, right? Yeah. It's a, a pain, a, a, a painting of the past. You pine for the past. And I always get worried. Like I watch like other shows and I'm like, that is not great. That, <laughs> yeah. No, sir. No, ma'am. Yeah. And that X-Men show holds up. Yeah. And so my kids love fun. it. Yeah. And that's been that's been a lot of fun. And I, and I'm, I love I'm it. Working too. With amazing yeah. people like, I mean, just really amazing people. Um, one of the other projects I'm working on right now that you are very familiar with is actually this chapter on culturally relevant pedagogy at the intersection of comics, hip hop, uh, et cetera, that is my sort of piece on Dazzler and Lizzo, right? And so this is one that I am really excited about, both because I get to return to Dazzler and Lizzo, who are figures that I love dearly, um, but also because it is an opportunity for me to express in a very effective way, I think, some of the deep-seated beliefs I hold about teaching, right? Um, and particularly about teaching popular culture. And so in that excited. One, yeah. And that <laughs> one I'm working with um, the series Children of the Atom, which is part of the Hickman thing, but it's written by Vida Ayala, which is one of my Rad. favorite Rad. Oh, oh, they're they're fantastic. Yes. Um, but the thing that I love about it is that there's a couple of moments in that that I'm looking at where these teenage mutants who have decided to live in the world rather than this sort of utopian space. Mm-hmm are negotiating all of the difficulties of growing up and being sort of socially ostracized and trying to navigate what youth is like and where they find their comfort in the weirdest ways are in things like a Dazzler concert or in a, a sort of playlist that includes sort of Lizzo featuring featuring on a Dazzler, Dazzler track. track. And yep. 
And the reality is, is that that's sort of what I imagine sort of, I mean, that's sort of, that lives up to my experience as a, as a human yeah. too, right? I mean, I'm the kind of person that will cry in the van at a stoplight if the right song comes on, right? Like right. I'm, I negotiate things like that. And, and I, I sort of, you know, this is going to sound so terrible because I'm that white guy from Michigan, right? But like, it reminds me of that sort of Eminem line, right? When he's talking about, you know, sing, you know, we sing for the kids that don't have a thing, you know, and, and yep. the sort of yep. way in which music becomes this place to process life when it's really difficult as a youth. Right. And that's right. I think about, you know, when have I done that? Right. And I think about, yeah. you know, the times that I've sat there and like, I can't deal with life right now. And I'm throwing on, you know, like a doom tree album or something. And I'm just like, I got to, yes. sort of like, I got to yes. find a way to make sense of this, um, you know, or the times that I will just, you know, put on music and imagine, right. A better world that allows me out of my trauma yeah. for a second. Yeah. Right. And so much of that that's is tied it. to what music meant to me as a youth. Some of it's tied to nostalgia, but also I watch my kids. I watch my students also turning to music and popular culture as a place to That's make right. sense of a world that has treated them like crap. That's right. Right. I mean, we are yeah. living in the COVID era with Gen Z having basically been through everything. Millennials having been through everything. Right. You know, I look at things like housing bubbles that will never burst and sort of all the things that have been packed into these yeah. false yeah. narratives about what life is going it's to be like. Yep. How do you negotiate that as a youth? Well, you turn to pop culture, yep. right? You turn to the aspirations and the potential that music and comics and other stories bring to you. That's and it. if I can bring that into my classroom for my students and use that as a pedagogical tool, well, I'm going to do that, right? So that's that, that yeah, project. It's a no-brainer, to- right? Oh, my gosh. And, I deviated uh, from the project, but that's what I'm working on. No, so. um, I... Whoever is, whoever is editing that volume is going to be really, really happy. I am really, really happy. Uh, so keep your, keep your eyes, keep your eyes and ears peeled kids. Um, and, and so I just want to, again, uh, Nick, Dr. Miller, Dr. Nick Miller. (laughs) Thank you so much, man, for taking the time, uh, for taking the time out again. This is, um, keep your eyes keep your eyes peeled um fire up your google machine um and get to the middle spaces yes right um check out the comic study society um at uncanny dazzler yep um fire up your google scholar hit up the get get the good stuff uh while the getting's good um thank (laughs) you so much for taking time with us today sir really really appreciate it your kids your students are so, so, so blessed um, and, and lucky to have you in their corner. That's so awesome. So oh, uh, best of luck or, or break a leg, uh, whatever I'm supposed to say about the rest <laughs> of the, the year. Um, and uh, those of you that, that, have, that have come to hang out with us, thank you for, for tuning in, make, taking time out of your day. Um, be well, be safe, uh, and we will talk to you soon.